Well, good morning to you. If we have not met, my name is David Watson. I'm the executive pastor uh, here at Double Oak, and it's my pleasure to open the word of the Lord with you this morning. Adam sends his regards to you. He's been preaching the gospel in Kentucky since Thursday, um, and uh, you be praying for the people that he is uh, preaching to. He and I were praying uh, yesterday afternoon for, uh, for, for several to go from death to life as, as he is sharing with them. So he sends his regard. The gospel is going forth. Um, so uh, there is much to be enjoyed about that. Uh, it also, uh, our youth have just completed uh, Disciple Now this weekend uh, under the wonderful leadership of Noel and Hunter, uh, 127 uh, students uh, involved in Disciple Now weekend uh, this weekend. So yeah, absolutely. So uh, be, be in prayer for all that's happened this weekend, what the Lord has started doing, what he's going to continue to do as he uh, pushes the gospel into the hearts of those students and how he's conforming them to his image and making the gospel come alive to them. Uh, as we've been going through this prayer series that Adam started uh, several weeks ago, and as you have been uh, reading the books that he's encouraged you to read and been a part of the uh, praying the prayer calendar that we did last month together. And you're sitting through sermons on prayer and uh, coming to these uh, prayer nights that have been wonderfully attended over the last couple of weeks. Our last one is coming up this Wednesday night. Not too late to jump in on that. I strongly encourage you to be a part of it. Um, And as we're doing all these things and you guys are engaging in such wonderful ways in the discipline of prayer, both individually and corporately as a body of Christ, I wonder if for some of you, uh, maybe many of you, as we are praying corporately and individually, if there is somewhere in your heart, in your life, in your prayers where you begin to think, what about mine? You know, and you, you hear stories of people's prayers being answered and the Lord moving in our congregation. And we've certainly seen some of that and we celebrate that. But maybe there's something in your prayer life that you're still waiting to see an answer to. And so I, I wonder if some of you, perhaps many of you, are asking how long? How long do I continue to pray? How long does the Lord wait? And am I the only one? You're not. Uh, the, The history of the church is filled with movements of God that have begun with the prayers of his people and uh, the prayers of those people uh, lasting for quite some time. If I can run through a few of them with you here real quick, just before the first great awakening under the preaching and leadership, the teaching of Jonathan Edwards, uh, there was a long season of prayer that uh, went into or, or preceded the first great awakening in our country. And Jonathan Edwards had this to say about it. Be much in prayer and fasting, both in secret and with one another. It seems to me it would, be, it would become the circumstances of the present day if ministers in a neighborhood would often meet together and spend days in fasting and fervent prayer among themselves. So, so it is God's will that the prayers of his saints shall be great and the principal means of carrying on the designs of Christ's kingdom in the world. When God has something to accomplish for his church, it is with his will that there should, be, that there should precede it the extraordinary prayer 
of his people. Preceding the Great Prayer Awakening, as it's known, or sometimes called the, the, the Third Great Awakening, uh, there was a, a single pastor, a single minister, his name was Jeremiah Lanfear, who was struggling to reach the community in Manhattan where, he, uh, where his Dutch Reformed church existed, and he was struggling to reach the people in his community, uh, and so he began to call people to prayer that the gospel would go forward, that the ministry of the church would spread out and meet the needs, spiritual, physical, and other, within that community, and he called people to pray. During the week, over lunch, that businessmen would come to this office where he was going to be and pray. Had no idea how many would show up. The first week, he had six Well, six is better than one. So they prayed. By the end of that month, they had 100 every day. Within six months, 10,000 people, only in the New York City area, praying every day for, for the gospel to reach that community. That began to spill out. Thousands of people began to congregate at lunch in cities like Chicago, St. Louis, Louisville, Cleveland, and it began to spread across the United States. And what, what God began to do was convert people to Christ, one million in a year in America, and then again in Ireland and Great Britain, and then the mainland of Europe, then Australia, South Africa, India the Pacific Islands. Tens of thousands of young people gave their life to missionary work as they spread the gospel into unreached areas across the world because people prayed. But, so we don't get sidetracked with large numbers and large movements, there was a, there was a woman in a solitary home in one family. 1,800 years or so ago, in a small Roman province called Numidia, and she began to pray simply for the salvation of her son, young boy they named Augustine. This woman's name was Monica, and Monica began to pray as Augustine went from school to school, sharpening his mind, who would become one of the foremost thinkers and philosophers and teachers in the world traveling from professorships from Carthage to Milan, watching her son repeatedly embrace lifestyles that pursued the pleasures of the flesh. Money, fame, sex, prestige, greater professorships. Still she prayed. Till one day Augustine came under the preaching of Ambrose, convincing himself that he was going to go examine the gospel proclaimed as a study in communication not knowing that it was going to be the preaching of Ambrose that would penetrate the heart of Augustine. Until one day, he's in his garden, struggling with his sin, not wanting to let it go, but being compelled toward Christ. And he writes in his book, The Confessions of St. Augustine, which I strongly recommend to you, that upon his conversion, first and foremost, obviously, 
What brought him to that point was the work of Christ in his life expressed to him through the gospel. And then right behind that, he said, the faithful prayers of his mother. God moves when his people pray. In Acts chapter 2, when Jesus had ascended, right before Jesus had ascended, he told his followers that the Holy Spirit was going to come on them in Jerusalem. Go and pray and wait. Day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell on the disciples. They began to proclaim the gospel in the native tongues of all that were gathered in Jerusalem on that day. Peter preached the first Christian sermon and 3,000 were converted the day the church was born. God moves when his people pray. So today we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. And if you are in this prayer emphasis that we are looking at, one of the people who are asking, that's all great, what about my prayers? When will God answer mine? The Lord addresses that in this parable that he gives us in Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So why do we have this passage? Why, why does Jesus speak into uh, the, the, the people that are following him uh, and, and, and give them this teaching? Well, first and foremost is because Jesus' followers, the disciples, and now in this day, us, uh, live in an eschatological tension. Um, eschatology is the study of end times, and uh, in Jesus' day, the belief was that when the Messiah came, that there would be a transition from the age that is to an age that was to come, the Messianic age, and it would be instantaneous. And this present age that we live in that is characterized by the triumph of evil men, the oppression of righteous men, the uh, activity of Satan in the world, demonic possession, those types of things, sickness, famine, illness, all these things, that that was the, the age that we live in. And when the messianic age came, all of that goes away. And Jesus shows up. 
And he says in Mark chapter 1 that he is ushering in, that his coming brings in the kingdom of God, the messianic age. And so they're just sitting back thinking, okay, well, we're about to see a show. Because we're going to go from age to age just like that. And we watch that happen in Jesus' ministry. He casts demons out of the demon-possessed. He heals those that are sick and lame. He, re- he raises the dead. But yet, in the disciples' day, and now still in our day, we do still see those things at work. That while we see the work of God on earth, we also see the triumph of evil men. We still see those that get sick. People still die. The mortality rate of humanity is right at 100%. And so we live in an age where we have tension between the kingdom of God coming, but the kingdom of this world, this present age, not yet leaving. And so there is a between age that Jesus begins to teach them about of an already dawning kingdom and a not yet fully realized kingdom. And in that age, that middle age, that in-between area, that's where we live. And so Jesus tells, and so Luke tells us that he, he told the people hearing this parable, most notably his disciples, to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. I love this. This is one of my favorite things about this. Even before we get to the parable, Jesus is aware that the difficulty of the age that we live in can cause us to lose heart. That the things that we see with our eyes and the things that we hear with our ears challenges the things that we believe in our spirit. And while Jesus doesn't explain how all of that is going to meet out, how all of that is going to be reconciled ultimately in the day that he returns again, what he does say is, don't lose heart. Pray continually. Because he knows that waiting is difficult. Do any of you know one single person in your life that is good at waiting on stuff? (laughs) No. Turn to the the book of Galatians sometime and read the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Read through the whole list. You know which one nobody wants? Patience. You know why? Because waiting hurts. Waiting's hard. And it's inconvenient. And Jesus knows that. So he tells them this parable that they might not give up. In this parable, there are two people, two characters. One, an unrighteous judge who, according both to Jesus' statement and the soliloquy that we see of the own man, neither fears God nor regards people. 
In Luke's day, that's the way of saying he was completely wicked. Some commentator says this is the program of the atheist who neither fears God nor regards man. And he's powerful. And he knows it. The other person in the parable we see is a, is a widow. And in Jesus' day, the widow would have been helpless. See, in, in, in Jesus' day, the security for a woman was found either in her father or after she married her husband or if her husband died, her son. But always tied to a male figure. And she obviously had none of those because she's going to the judge herself. So she's powerless to affect her own situation. She's obviously been wronged by someone because she keeps going every day. Right? If it's a mild infraction, build a bridge and get over it. This is not a mild infraction. This is someone that has intentionally wronged her, that continues to do so, and she needs deliverance and vindication. Now make no mistake, she's not asking for vengeance. She just wants justice. And there's no one to help her get that. So she goes to the judge herself. Day after day after day. Give me justice for my adversary. And the judge won't hear her. And nobody can make him. And, I mean, what's the worst you can do? Say, this is an unrighteous judge? I don't care. I do not value your opinion. Because I neither fear God nor regard man. What are you going to do? Well, what Jesus says is for a while he refused in verse 4. But afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. The Greek word there for beat me down actually means to give someone a black eye. She is pummeling me with her petition, and I just want to be done with it. So whatever, here you go. I'm just, she's just going to wear him down until he, he, he cannot even bear to see her coming and just says, and finally just caves in and says, whatever you need, you have it. That's Jesus' parable. And at the end of it, he says, and, he says, and the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. I don't care about God. I don't care about her. But strictly out of my own convenience and pleasure, here's justice. Now, Jesus gives several parables. And he gives them in different ways for different reasons. And lots of times, especially like, for example, when he's, uh, when he's uh, talking about the kingdom of God, he'll say something like, the kingdom of God is like, 
insert imagery here, a mustard seed, for example. And he uses simile and metaphor to say God is like this, or the kingdom of God is like this, or, you know, that's not what he's doing here. This parable is not saying that God is like this. This parable is saying that even if an unrighteous judge will give justice, will show mercy, how much more would a just judge? So what does Jesus want us to see in this parable? One, Jesus wants to see that we are not the woman. If you are a follower of Christ, you are not the woman. You are not without support. You are not without refuge. You are not without someone who will stand by your side and contend for your goodness, for your, for your well-being. You are not alone. Not only that, but you are also not unheard. Your petitions don't fall on deaf ears. Your prayers aren't paid no attention. Wow, that was a, that was a terrible sentence. I used a double negative there and everything. You were not intentionally ignored. You are not the woman who gains justice simply by wearing down the person that can give it to her. You are heard, you are championed, and you are valued by the one from whom you seek hearing. The other thing that Jesus wants to see in this parable is God is not like the judge. He is not unwilling to respond to us. Just by the definition of his character, God who not only loves but is love himself, God who not only shows mercy but is mercy in his nature, when he reveals himself longs to show those things to us. He is not unwilling to respond to us, and he is not against you. He is not against you. I don't know, if, I, I don't know your life. You and I barely know each other. I haven't even been here that long. So I'm not going to make any assumptions about your walk with Christ, but I'll tell you about mine. There have been seasons in my life where I have prayed for things to God. God has not taken my advice on how he should answer that prayer, nor in the time frame in which he should answer that prayer. And after a while, I feel like I'm annoying God. That when I come to God, that what God is actually, God's reaction to me is, oh man, this guy. And so, you know, it's like, I, I feel like that what, what I need to do is say, hey, look, I don't want to, I don't want to take too much of your time. I don't want to impose. I know you're busy. So, I'm just going to leave this here. Just... That's it. Just gonna, I'm just going to leave that right there. 
you know what? It's too much. I wrote it on a smaller piece of paper this time. And I'm just going to leave it right there. Please don't strike me down. That is not God. What the Bible tells us about God is that when we, when we come to him, he welcomes us. Come in, sit down, talk, tell me. I want to hear. I want to know. I mean, I already know your heart. I know everything, but I want to hear it from you. Because when I hear it from you, we commune. We fellowship. I actually went to great lengths to make that possible. So come in. Sit with me. I'm not against you. I want to hear you. And I will not answer you begrudgingly. I'm inviting you in. And so Jesus says, Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you. Now, look, this is Jesus. All right, this is not some somebody that just walked around with Jesus. This is not some historian reporting what he thinks Jesus meant. And this is not somebody that is coerced into saying these things. This is Jesus who says, I tell you, based on who I am, that he will give justice to them speedily. Some translations say suddenly. What we understand from that is, I will answer in the exact perfect time. Now let's just own the fact that your time frame and my time frame are not the exact perfect time. There goes the waiting thing again. And then he says, when the Son of Man comes, when I do return, when this age is concluded and the kingdom of God comes in in its fullness, will I find, will the Son of Man find faith on earth? What does faith look like? Faith, according to this parable, looks like persistence in seeking the face of God. So how do we respond to this? How do we respond to this parable? Don't give up. Don't give up praying. Don't give up asking. Pray continually. Cry out night and day, he says, of his elect. And he will answer. So response number one, if you're not part of his chosen people, the elect, if you're not part of the people of God, if you don't belong to him, that's prayer number one. Your first prayer is a prayer of repentance and a request for forgiveness. That's how you come to him. That's how you fellowship with him. 
That's where he extends you communion. Prayer number one is a prayer of salvation. Prayer number one is a prayer of restoration. If you are part of the people of God, you begin to pray for the kingdom of God to come. Lord, make what you want this world to look like, look like it. Jesus says that a lot better than I do. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. That's your prayer. So there is a global, universal, cosmic reality of the kingdom of God that brings to restoration and order all things that sin has broken. But the greatness of God allows that the magnificent scope of that work also encompasses the individual prayer that hide in your heart. Pray for the kingdom of God to come in this world, but also in your life. And trust him with it. Day after day, continually. Because what the the lips of Jesus promise us is that when his people ask for that, he answers speedily. And then the third thing is this. Offer your petitions and prayers to him. Offer your supplication to him. Tell him what you need. Tell him what you want. Tell him what you're walking through. Tell him what you're dealing with. Tell him all of these things. Not because he doesn't know them, but because in asking, you and I learn to trust. And say, Lord, here's, here's my, here are my things. Here are all my things. Just, I can't do any of that. I know because I tried. That's the way we pray, right? We, we try and fix it first, and then when we, decide that we, when we discover that we can't, right? So look, I've already done the best I can. I may have actually made it worse. So I need you to do it. And when the, the hearts of God's people are stirred to prayer, asking him to act and move on their behalf. The God who calls his elect, the God who cares for his elect, the God who promises to answer the prayers of his elect, moves. So let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you are not the unrighteous judge. We are thankful that you are the perfect righteous judge. That you long to hear us. That you long to commune with us. And that in the goodness of your character and nature, you want to answer our prayer. Father, I pray that you would find us faithful. I pray that you would remind us that we are not without support, that we are not alone, that we are not 
powerless when we stand in you. So in this minute, in, in, the, in this moment, if there are those that are not one of your children right now, Holy Spirit, stir in that heart a prayer of repentance that loves you and seeks you and wants to be restored to you because you have called them. Father, in the hearts of your children in this place, I pray that you would be near to them and attentive to their prayer. And we know that you are because you have promised that you are. But in our weakness and waiting, Father, would you extend mercy to us and assure us that you are there. And as we walk through this series, as we look at your scripture, as we seek to understand the mystery of prayer, would you stir us to faithfulness? Not because of who we are, but because of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. You may have never prayed for Christ to forgive and restore and redeem you. I would love to pray with you. You may have other things going on in your life that you have been praying and praying and praying and praying, and maybe you just want new words to put along with yours. I'd be glad to pray with you. What I most want you to do right now in this moment is to pray continually knowing that the God who hears your prayers is moved by your prayers because he told us he is.